Take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 7 again. Come to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 20 today. So we looked last week at, and the few weeks prior to the earlier part of this chapter, and saw how the Apostle Paul is talking about the role of the law and what the law has done and how the law is, it points us to the gospel, it points us to Christ, but it cannot save us, it cannot do a work of grace within us, it, it merely shows us our real need. And, and up until through verse 13, the Apostle Paul has been speaking pretty much in the past tense. This is what the law has done, this is what the law can do. And then he comes to, to this passage starting in verse 14, and he shifts totally to the present tense. It's like he was talking about what the law was to me and what the law showed me, but now he says, this is what is happening in my life right now, in the current time, at this very moment, as, we come, as he experiences this in his Christian life. Now, now a lot of people have doubted that. I, I, I kind of gave away my main thesis here at the very beginning. I believe this is Paul as a believer, as a mature believer, as one who is in Christ and growing in Christ, as one who is the apostle writing the letter. But, but that has not been a, an uncontroversial discussion through the years. As a matter of fact, some have said various things about it. But, but if we don't realize something here, we'll miss the whole point, I think, in the second half of the, of the seventh chapter. And that is that it's important to realize that the Apostle Paul, up to this point, has primarily been concerning himself with helping us understand the whole concept, the whole doctrine of justification by faith alone. Justification being made right with God, being put right with God in a right relationship with God. Justification has been his focus as he's talked about the depth of sin and the breadth of sin and all that's going on. And, and now he's moving in from justification, although that is still the foundation and that is still vitally un, uh, important that we understand it, the Apostle Paul is now moving into what we call sanctification, the walk of the Christian, the development of the Christian life, and ultimately he's going to point us to glorification. We end up chapter 8, he's going to talk about what glorification is all about, what it means to not just be justified, made right with God, not just to be being sanctified, that is growing in our faith with Christ, but also what it means to be glorified in the presence of God for all eternity. And, and, and be there without any concept or any perception or any reality of sin whatsoever. There'll be no penalty for sin, there'll be no power of sin, and there'll even be no presence of sin when we get to that glorified state that he's going to point us to and talk about later on in this particular book. But today his thoughts are on sanctification. Today his thoughts are on what is taking place in the believer's life. Now some, uh, let me read this and we'll talk about some of the ways it's been looked at and try to analyze exactly why I come to the conclusion that I come to. Beginning in verse 14, chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, on the, uh, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do, uh, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the, with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. 
but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in the flesh. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What a confused man! I mean, I mean, what a horrible situation to be in. Paul says, listen, I want you to know, I, I know I'm a, I've been sold into slavery of sin. But in chapter 6, he said, we have, the, the chains have been broken. We've been broken free from sin. And, and now he says, but I'm sold under sin. How in the world can Paul reconcile that reality? I, I love what the song, the last song we sang, uh, uh, Living Hope said, said, You have broken every chain, there's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, our living hope. That's where our hope is for for being set free. That's where our hope is for coming to this understanding of, of we are in Christ, and in Christ we have security, and in Christ we have His power, and in Christ we have His hope. But at the same time, still struggling with that, that old sin principle, that old sin that Paul says dwells within us. And, and, and we, would wish, we would wish that at our salvation that sin would just be eradicated. And I think what Paul is wanting us to see here is that is not a reality. And as far as I'm concerned, I hope you can see the same thing, I find great assurance for myself and for you in this passage. I find great assurance that Paul, the apostle, the great apostle of the faith, the one who has taught it and preached it and and taken it to the uttermost parts of the earth of his day, that he still finds himself struggling with the concept of sin. Now, others have not seen it that way. Some have said, no, the man that Paul is talking about here is an unsaved man. He shifts gears here and he, he talks about somebody that is not in Christ. How else could he say they're sold under sin? And, and how else could he have said back in, as I said, in, in 6, 17 and 18, when he said, um, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching of which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become now slaves of righteousness. How can Paul then turn around and say, I am a, I'm, I'm sold under sin. I still have this bondage, this, this fight, this struggle that remains in me. Paul says, nothing good lives in me. He speaks of his flesh, his own trying there. He speaks of, when I try to obey the law of God, when I in my own flesh seek to do what is right, I find myself falling flat on my face. The way Paul describes himself in this passage is not at all how he describes himself at other places in his unregenerate state. Look with me just a minute to Philippians chapter 3. You know that passage well. We've looked at it in depth uh, going through Philippians and also at other times. 
But look at what he says about his pre-Christian experience here. Paul says in chapter 3, beginning, well, just start looking there in in, in verse 4. Talking about we should, you put no, Christians, those who are circumcised of the heart, uh, put no confidence in the flesh. But he says, though I myself might have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, there's unregenerate Paul. Paul saw the law of God and he said, hey, I can do it, and I'm doing it. I'm I'm working at it. Everybody looks at me and says, Paul is a good man. Paul's a Pharisee. Paul is living up to the law as best he can. Everywhere I try, Paul says, I just, I just do it. I, I keep up with the law. If, if Paul were talking about, in Romans chapter 7, uh, an unregenerate man, especially considering talking about himself as unregenerate, he, he wouldn't have said, I, I have the desire to do what's right, but I can't carry it out. When he was an unbeliever, he said, I have a desire to do what is right, and I am doing it. He was self-deceived, as unbelievers are. Most unbelievers you talk to today will say, why do I need a Savior? I'm a good man. I'm a good woman. I live a good life. I live a moral life. I don't don't do all those things that I consider wrong. Operative word, the things I consider wrong. I don't do all those things. I'm I'm a good person, and, and so why would I need a Savior? That's the lost view of the law. And they see the law as our culture does today. The law of God is something that is that is kind of foreboding, something that says, I want, to, I want to be a killjoy, God wants to be a killjoy of all the pleasures that you might like to have. If I want to lie, I want to lie, and I'll feel good about lying. If I want to steal, I'll steal and feel good about stealing. If I want to commit adultery, I'll commit adultery, and I'll feel good about it because it's a pleasurable thing. I don't have to worry about the law, the lost man says, and I don't think about it. So I think it's very easy to kind of put out of hand here that, Paul is talking about a lost person. Some some say he's talking about a carnal Christian. And that's been popular in our generation, especially in my days in college and afterwards, that that there are two dimensions of of Christianity. Or really, there are three types of people. There's those who are lost and without Christ, without any hope. There are those who who are spiritual believers, who are who are having Christ rule in their life, and they're experiencing victory all the time. And then there are those in the middle that are carnal Christians. They've they've asked Jesus to be their Savior, but they've never come to see Him as Lord of their life. And and so that that has been a very popular thing. I I used that as a good excuse when I was a freshman in college. And two young men came up to me and said, said, here are three circles. Where do you fit? And I said, well, I'd probably fit in that middle one. I've I've been baptized. I've joined the church. I'm probably in that middle one. Christ isn't ruling my life, and things are kind of messed up somewhat, but, but, but that's where I'd be. And they said, don't you want to move into this third circle? And I looked at it, and I thought about it, and I said, no, not really. I, I kind of like it where I am. Kind of happy. If I got salvation, I got fire insurance, I'm going to go to heaven when I die, I'll call the shots here. I'll do whatever I want to do. That's, that's the whole idea of the carnal Christian. But Paul gives no hope for that. Matter of fact, Paul later in this very book will say, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead 
and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It doesn't say if you believe in your heart God raised from dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Savior and someday maybe I'll make him Lord, then you're saved even before he's Lord. No, it gives no hope for that. So the whole idea of, of these classifications of Christians are, are, are problematic when you come to the Scripture. There's a third way that people have looked at this, and one of my favorite preachers who's now with the Lord, uh, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones saw it this way. Uh, Lloyd-Jones said that, that this man of Romans 7 is a man that's under conviction. He's, he's, he's been kind of awakened to his sin, but he has not yet come to Christ for faith. He's, he, he's kind of been, uh, he's been given a little insight into the fact that there is sin in his life, and he really wants to understand more about it, but he just hadn't reached that point yet. And, and Lloyd-Jones says this is just a man of conviction, under conviction. And, and basically what that does is it places this, this particular passage then in, in what we might see as a hypothetical situation. Uh, Paul not speaking of himself, but speaking of some possible man somewhere who might be under conviction. I just don't see that in how Paul expresses himself in this passage. If you read this, Paul is struggling in writing this. I have a feeling the Apostle Paul, had he not been a believer in writing this, would have, would have never said it the way he did. But, but Paul says, I want you to understand, I, I find myself struggling I find myself not understanding my actions. I don't understand what's happening. I want to serve Christ. I want to serve the truth of God. I want to be obedient. And I find myself wanting to do that, but not, not in my own power able to live up to it. I find myself sometimes walking with Christ, knowing that I'm walking with Christ, but then stumbling, if you will. Stumbling. Now, I guess that could be called a moment of carnality where we take our eyes off Christ and put our eyes on the world or eyes on the circumstances or even our eyes on ourselves and think that we have the ability to fulfill what God wants to do in our life. There, there is a, a point of carnality there, but, but not carnality as a long-going, abiding circumstance or condition of the believer. Paul says, you know, I, I really want to obey Christ fully but I find myself not doing it now, now you may all be perfect I don't know no I do know but you may think you're all you may think you're perfect and you say, may say well Bill I, I never have any struggle like that I don't have any I don't have any struggle when I fall into sin I just say no big deal and I get back up and I go on and do as best I can and you might say, well, Bill, I don't, I don't really worry about whether I do what's right or don't do what's right, whether I'm doing what's wrong. Or, 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 I just don't think about those things. Then, then I worry about your soul. Because it's only a believer, only a person that is in Christ Jesus that will struggle with these matters. That's all. An unbeliever will be happy in his or her sin. A person who's dependent on carnality will be like I was as a college student, 
happy to be carnal and live in a, a deluded state that somehow, some way, even though I, do, I live life for myself as Lord of my own life, doing what I want to do, somehow God's going to owe me something when it comes to the end. I mean, that's, that, that's the way it is in a lot of people's lives. But it gives me great hope. It gives me great assurance, if you will, that perhaps the greatest pioneer of the Christian faith, perhaps a man who saw Christ on the Damascus Road and was struck blind because of his glory, who heard his voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And who heard the voice of Christ and, and who said, Lord, who are you? I don't know who you are. And he told him. And he went away from that Damascus Road experience on down to where he was headed. And there, God did a miracle in his life of transformation. And he became the great apostle of the faith. Said in Philippians, as to my zeal before I was in Christ, I persecuted the church. That's what he was doing on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to arrest and imprison and perhaps even kill those horrible Christians. And now he, ought, he is one. He's a changed man. But he still struggles with the flesh. He's the apostle that gave us the biggest part of God's revelation to you and me, God's word to you and me in the New Testament. He's the man that God used to tell us that we were lost in our, de in our trespasses and sins, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God through his grace made us alive in Christ Jesus. He, Paul is the Paul is the apostle of hope beyond hope, if you will. Paul knew it. Paul experienced it. Paul heard the voice of Christ. But he still struggled. I find great hope in the fact that a believer is not one who is satisfied in themselves. I find great hope that the believer is one who is growing in their sanctification and who is seeing that there is sin that will still invade their life. Even as I prayed earlier, Satan hates the church and Satan hates believers and he constantly wants to cause us to fall and he constantly puts things in our path that will trip us up. He knows what our idols are, as we talked about last week. He knows what we are susceptible to. He understands us better than we understand ourselves sometimes. But it's great hope to me that even when I fall, I will not be satisfied in that fall. I will not be pleased in it. I will not find joy in it. That's why I wanted you to hear David's prayer in Psalm 51 this morning in our responsive reading. I want you to hear the depth of that prayer when he, when he cried out to God. Did you notice, this is written after the fall, his fall of Bathsheba. This is written after Nathan the prophet points his bony finger in his face and says, you are the one, you're the sinner that I'm talking about. And David cries out to God. Oh God. Oh God. 
restore, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy that I knew before this horrendous sin of adultery and murder and laziness and a ton of other things you can throw in there with David. Lord, restore to me the joy that I know with you. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about, as I mentioned in my pastoral prayer this morning, this idea of, of leaving your, when Jesus wrote to them through John in Revelation and the letters to the churches, he said, he said, you have forgotten your first love. I don't think he was saying the church at Ephesus was lost. I think he was saying you've gotten confused. You've looked at your idols. You've, you've fallen in love with other things. You've let things eclipse me in your lives. You've let things block me out. And, and now I'm calling you repent and return to your first love. You don't need to be saved again. It's not that you got saved, you lost it. You got saved again, you lost it in this horrible uh, circle of, of, of repentance and salvation and lostness in a person's life. Not that at all. Not at all. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Not the joy of my salvation. You notice that little, little slight emphasis there? It's not my salvation. It's not something I earned. It's not something I got by myself. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation in my life. If your joy is gone, you need to ask, Where's my first love? If your joy's gone, you ought to ask, what have I allowed to become more important in my life than Jesus Christ is? What have I, what have I allowed to become more important in my life than the glory of God? Because therein lies the idol that is stripping your joy, stripping your peace, Stripping your ability to see life as the Apostle Paul does. Now, now I love how, you know, some people say, well, in, in, in chapter 7, he's, he's in this horrible state of defeat. In chapter 8, he's going to hit victory and, and all's going to be better. I think Paul would tell you, if he were here to speak to you today, that, that this was not one time in my life. This was a constant struggle because Satan hated my obedience to God. And he hates your obedience to God in the same way. But, but, but Paul says there at the end, he said, Wretched man that I am. Now, I, I'm, I'm nothing in myself. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul simply says, there is the answer. There's where you find the, the joy again in Christ Jesus. Not in yourself, not in your good deeds, not in what you can do, but in Him. I love how J.I. Packer put it looking at this passage. He said, he summarized these verses this way. He said, alive in Christ, Paul's heart delights in the law. And he wants to do what is good and right and thus keep it perfectly. But he finds that he cannot achieve the total compliance at which he aims. Listen, that's where sanctification comes in, folks. We, we set our goal, we set our mind, we set our hearts on, Lord, I want to be perfect. 
Scripture says, Peter says, quoting the Old Testament, he says, God says, be holy even as I am holy. That's, that's my goal. I want to be holy just like God is holy. Guess what? I'm not. Neither are you. But that's my desire. It's my desire above everything else. So Packer says he finds himself, he just can't have total compliance with that which he aims. Whenever he measures what he has done, he finds he's fallen short. From this he perceives that the anti-God urge called sin, though dethroned in his heart, still dwells in his own flawed, damaged nature. Thus the Christian's moral experience. Or Paul would not be telling us this, Packer says, just to earn theological points, if he did not think it was typical. The, the Christian's moral experience is that his reach persistently exceeds his grasp and that his desire for perfection is frustrated by the discomposing and distracting energies of indwelling sin. Stating this sad fact about himself renews Paul's distress at it and the cry of verses 24 and 25, who can, who can deliver me from this body of death? Then at once he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Packer says he struggles. He gets distressed that he doesn't do what God has called him to do or he does what God has told him not to do. He finds himself in that distressed state. And what does he do? Does he go into depression and, oh, woe is me, and, and I just feel really bad that I've done that? No, he says, who can deliver me? I'll tell you who can deliver me. Jesus Christ. He's the only one. It's his indwelling. It's his power. It's his living within me. and Giving me that sanctifying day-by-day walk where it may be up and then down. A lot like our weather lately. may get really cold, and then it gets hot again. Wrong way. Cold, then hot again. And that may be the way our walk is on this earth, because Satan hates you being obedient to God. He really does. There's another phrase in that, that song we sang, Living Hope. We won't sing it every Sunday, but I almost would. Because it gets to that phrase... Then came the morning. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. What was the promise? The promise of eternal life, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of justification, the promise of sanctification, the promise of ultimate glorification. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. What morning was that? Your buried body began to breathe. Jesus, in the grave, dead. Not Easter, I know, but he wasn't swooning. He wasn't just waiting the third day so he could pop out and appear something that he wasn't. He wasn't just really damaged, but he got his strength back somehow three days in the ground, and he said, I'm coming out with victory. No, not that at all. His, his dead body his buried body began to breathe. 
That was the morning that sealed the promise, folks. The promise of the cross is empty without the resurrection. The promise of us walking in Christ, living in Christ, having our sins forgiven, and the struggle being real but fighting against it by His Holy Spirit working in us, not in our own strength, that promise was sealed in His resurrection. That we are in Christ. Paul will later say to the Colossians, he'll say, you are in Christ. And that's the hope of your glory. It's the hope of glory. Hope is not your ability to obey. Hope is that you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are secure. No matter what comes your way, no matter how far and how hard the enemy fights against you, your security, when you fall, to be picked up by the living and loving God is where your hope lies. Man, Christians and churches can be a mess when they take their eyes off that hope, that only hope, that living hope that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, Paul is saying here, sin is still a very real factor in this world and in in lives, believer and unbeliever alike. If you're here this morning, you say, well, I don't, I don't feel any problem with sin. I don't feel any need for a Savior. Then I pray for you that His Holy Spirit will bring about conviction in your life to see that, yes, you are a sinner. You are in rebellion against God. And, and, and God, I pray that He will do a work by His Holy Spirit of showing you His grace. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, man, I, I just beat myself up because, you know, I, I did something that I know I shouldn't have done or I didn't do something I know I should have done and I, I find myself struggling over that. You're just beating yourself up. Paul says, who's going to deliver you from that self-imposed beatdown? No one can do it but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only living hope. He is the only one who gives life. He calls us to himself. He does a work in us. As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but praise be to God, he made us alive in him. His work. And I invite you to that one this morning, Jesus Christ. You don't know him. Not to me, not to a church, not to a denomination, not to, a, not to an organization. I invite you to one thing, to Christ. Because I can't give you any hope apart from Christ. The church can't give you any hope in and of itself. It's all about Jesus Christ, who is our living hope. Yeah, you're going to struggle. If you don't struggle, I worry about you. 
never fails it when someone comes in to talk to me in my office and says, Bill, I just, I'm worried, I'm scared, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm, I've got sin in my life, and I don't like it, I really want to be obedient to Christ, and I, and I, I just don't know what to do. I just say, thanks, God, thanks be to God. You're struggling. Unbelievers don't struggle. Believers do. But I don't like to struggle, and I don't either. I'd rather God just make me perfect right now. Yeah, me too. Never promise that until we see Him face to face. Let's pray.